And now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this evening's programme, on the eve of the centenary year of its first publication, we look at A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. With me to consider the book are author Eilish Nguivna, Luke Gibbons, whose book Joyce's Ghosts, Ireland, Modernism and Memory has just been published, and Anne Fogarty, co-editor with Fran O'Rourke of Voices on Joyce, a collection of essays on Joyce published earlier this year. But first, two other voices on their relationship with James Joyce, and in particular, a portrait of the artist as a young man, Anne Enright and Frank McGuinness. My journey with Joyce started too young. I bought Ulysses when I was very young and my parents wouldn't let me read it and uh, gave me Dubliners instead, uh, a book which I found entirely dull at the age of 16 and then uh, then read Portrait of the Artist immediately after that. I was in a college in Canada for two years and my English teacher Theo Dombrowski was a great Joycean. So we did a portrait of the artist in the class and 17 I think is a really good age to read a portrait of the artist. I was really taken by the arguments on the steps of the National Library, weirdly. I didn't really grasp I think that thing about adolescent sexuality. I was quite interested in the grubbiness and the sin and all the rest of it. Reading about them in Canada with an international group of people you realised how exotic all of that was and how bizarre. So it was a process of estrangement for me and some realisation about where I had come from. Then I went to Trinity College and uh, I was working like crazy in Players Theatre, which is the student theatre. And during the summer, we would put on plays for the tourists uh, and give them soup and sandwiches at lunchtime. And we put on a thing, Joy Certs, which were extracts from Joyce put together by Declan Hughes. And I played Dante at the Christmas dinner scene. And I also played the uh, priest who gives the Hellfire Sermon. So 101 times in 1983, I delivered this amazing sermon to these American tourists who were all kind of quaking and looking at me. I mean, the smell of hell, you know, the horror of this straight and dark prison is increased by its awful stench. All the filth of the world, all the awful and scum of the world, we are told, shall run there as to a vast reeking sewer when the terrible conflagration of the last day has purged the world. We went to Edinburgh at um, the festival there and one of the rules in Edinburgh is you play no matter what. So we had one guy in the audience one day and I rolled up to him (laughs) and goggle-eyed and filled him full of the stench of hell. And the poor guy started laughing. He corpsed. Couldn't back away fast enough. Again, uh, to do Portrait in Trinity seemed part of the fabric of our lives. It didn't feel like an obsolete text, but it almost didn't feel like an old text. It was very much about the young mind figuring things out, uh, that, that 
wonderful, almost fake intellectualism as uh, of having large opinions about aesthetics in the world, that too made an enormous amount of sense to us. In my last book, The Green Road, I had a Christmas scene with a family in it. And of course, you have to go back to the portrait. And I had known the scene very well because I'd acted it out endlessly. And those lines still recur to me. I haven't read Portrait in maybe 10 years. I've dipped in and it rearranges itself in my head. That scene on Dolly Mine Strand with the girl uh, with the seaweed on her thigh, that epiphany where he says he's going to forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of, of his race. That is something that I think a touchstone for every Irish writer. What you're trying to do is make something that has not been previously made. It's one of the reasons that we don't work through ideology, which is the created conscience. You're looking to go underneath and go from some kind of source or wellspring and make something again as a kind of non-serviam, you know, as a cry of dissent. It, it is extremely relevant to, I think, all Irish writers today. very specific memory of when I first heard and I mean heard a portrait of this young man it was in a, a very intriguing late night arts programme that used to be on Radio Erin as it was and I heard Joni Mitchell reading the opening pages of A Portrait of the Young Man um, and it went through me, I was about 14 or 15 and I had never in my life had the shock of recognition that I had from her reading it, and she read it magnificently well. I have subsequently tried to find that recording, and I've never come across it. But it was Johnny Mitchell, whom I loved as a singer at the time, and she was reading um, Joyce. And that's where it began. Did it get you looking for the text yourself? Or? Well, within weeks of hearing um, that... I was in Derry. There was a, a rather good bookshop there, the APCK, the branch of the APCK, which was my lifeline when I was a teenager. Um, I bought my first Seamus Heaney there, and I bought my first Joyce there. I bought The Portrait of the Artist Young Man, and I read it in practically a setting. Now, I couldn't follow three quarters of it, but uh, I still remembered the thrill of it and the pleasure of it. And I got so much from it, and I w- was devoted to Joyce from then on because it's such a landmark in my own development as a human being and the development of the country, both its political culture and its spiritual culture. It's a key text and very deeply um, aligned those two forces, the, the cultural and the political. It was published in 1916. It's no accident that it bears that imprint because if the rising was an assertion of um, you know, a, a political will, Portrait Young Man was a great declaration of independence of spirit and the aesthetic voice as the determiner of what it is to be Irish and what it is to be human. Um, so I feel that it is a revelation, um, an act of revelation to me uh, in my life and uh, that is why I would want to regard it as very worthy of celebration. Is there a particular number of pages, episodes... What stands out for you and why? But what I particularly love about it is his extraordinary, intimate stories of childhood, the realisation of childhood, um, the period at Clongos and all the terrors that were involved with that. 
However, as I said, the first part of the book that I heard was its opening pages. And that is, for me, still the entry into this wonderland. Would you like to read that for us? I would, indeed. Once upon a time, and a very good time it was, there was a moo cow coming down along the road. And this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Duku. His father told him that story. His father looked at him through a glass. He had a hairy face. He was Baby Duku. The moo cow came down the road where Betty Byrne lived. She sold lemon plat. Oh, the wild rose blossoms on the little green place. He sang that song. That was his song. Oh, the green wolf boffeth. When you wet the bed first, it is warm, then it gets cold. His mother put on the oil sheet. That had the queer smell. His mother had a nicer smell than his father. She played on the piano the sailor's hornpipe for him to dance. He danced. Tra-la-la-la-la, tra-la-la, tra-la-la-di, tra-la-la-la-la, tra-la-la-la-la. Uncle Charles and Dante clapped. They were older than his mother and father, but Uncle Charles was older than Dante. Dante had two brushes in her press. The brush with the maroon velvet back was for Michael Davitt and the brush with the green velvet back was for Panel. Dante gave him a chuckle every time he brought her a piece of tissue paper. The Vances lived in number seven. They had a different mother and father. They were Eileen's mother and father. When they were grown up, he was going to marry Eileen. He hid under the table. His mother said, Oh, Stephen will apologise. Dante said, Oh, if not... The eagles will come and pull at his eyes, pull at his eyes, apologise, apologise, pull at his eyes, apologise, pull at his eyes, pull at his eyes, apologise. George to me is the great liberator. He is the great figure who told me that anything is possible, go and do it. In that extract that I've read, you have contained within the seeds of everything that he did, the play on language, the shock of recognition, the intimacy of um, describing how the body functions, the way the child's imagination forms and is awakened by truly eventful forces that only the child can recognise. He just is the man who tells you it's right that you go out and explore the world. It's right you find your voice. That's what I did. He's a glorious, glorious, as I say, liberator. I want a lover as well. <laughs> Frank McGuinness there. With me in studio to discuss Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man are Eilish Nguivna, Luke Gibbons and Anne Fogarty. And without assuming that 
everyone listening is familiar with it. Uh, could you summarise the book, its history, its structure and so on? Um, the remarkable fact about Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is that it was actually published in New York very late December 1916 and Joyce had actually stipulated in the, the contract that the, the book would appear uh, in this year um, so he wanted this book to be part of the year of revolution in, in Ireland. It had previously been published in a journal 1914 to 1915 and the reason that Portrait was published first in New York was because the printers refused to handle the, t- the, the text in the UK and Harriet Shaw Weaver then wanted the text set in, in New York. She, she actually got printers to agree to produce the book and those galley sheets then went to London in 1917. Joyce in some ways was entering into a, a familiar Irish genre. It's both about a boy becoming himself in Irish society but also obviously becoming an artist and Joyce there is following in the footsteps of novels that were role models for him. Uh, Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, um, George Moore's account of himself becoming an artist in Paris uh, in the 1880s in Confessions of a Young Man and John Millington sings The Iron Islands people might be surprised to hear that, was also an influence on this text. So in some ways, Joyce is writing about a a deflected autobiography of himself, how he became an artist, and a kind of ethnology a la John Millington Singh of Irish society, what Irish society feels like and how it imprints a young boy growing up in Dublin. What kind of reviews did it get when it first came out? The reviewers were shocked. Um, It obviously was seen as an an, an important publication, um, but reviewers like H.G. Wells, attention to Joyce's obsession with grubby aspects of life. It was actually reviewed positively by Kate O'Brien and usually Joyce's reception in Ireland was most positive uh, in the hands of female reviewers. Um, so people knew it was a momentous text but it was also seen as a shocking text, a text that was breaking the mould in some ways. Eilish, when did you first encounter a portrait of an artist? Um, I'm afraid in the rather formal setting of, of UCT as an English student when we read it um, as part of our curriculum and my memory is 1971-72. I'd um, read Dubliners before and I'd bought my copy of Ulysses, I know, when I was in sixth year in school and had a go at that. Yeah, 17 or 18, a good time of life to read it, in fact. Do you remember the impact it had on you at the time? As, as Anna Enright said, it, it seemed quite contemporary to me. Of course, things had changed in Ireland, but they hadn't changed that much. You know, at the beginning, all the little prayers that are rather sweet and comforting for the little boy um, gradually, you know, evolving into the Hellfire Sermon, which is appalling, really. And the video games with violence and so on don't hold a candle to the descriptions of the tortures of hell as uh, delineated by this preacher. And to the end, when Joyce um, has the interview with the head of the school, um, asking him if he's if he possibly has a vocation. All those things were happening. The head of my school asked me if I had a vocation. I'd been to retreats. Mind you, I do not remember sermons <laughs> quite of that ilk. I think Catholicism had softened up quite a lot by 1971. But it was it, it was all familiar in many ways. The physical terrain was my terrain. I, I was a Dubliner. And that probably was the most wonderful, in a way, one of the more ordinary things about the book, that it's set in these 
these streets, you know, Stillorgan and Black Rock and Drumcondra and it just sanctified Dublin. But it certainly had the effect of making one as a young writer. I felt very like Joyce, really. It, it was very affirmative. It meant this is the place to write about. It's good to be writing about Renala and Camden Street and stuff and and great literature happens. I, 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 I had the sense of I live in a city of literature. Luke Gibbons, do you recall your first reading of Portrait of the Artist? Well, when I first encountered it, I had flown the nets of boarding school, Summerhill College, Sligo. What was remarkable was how much Clangos at the turn of the century was prefiguring boarding schools, even on the edge of Vatican II. In other words, the whole notion of corporal punishment, the whole notion of bullying in school, when Stephen's glasses are broken and the teacher says so so you didn't do your lessons because you had the broken glasses trick we know we know lazy idle schemers like you and this notion of boarding school being this incubation period that you had to endure so in a sense for someone coming out of that ambience it was almost as if Joyce had read my mind or had stolen our thoughts it was not on the curriculum when I was in university in Galway. In fact, it was it was extracurricular. And of course, it was forbidden fruit in that sense. So it, we were reading Joyce along with Jack Kerouac, Camus, Sartre. And Joyce had this kind of currency and it was kind of cool to be reading Joyce. Thank God for Penguin Classics, because had Penguin not brought out the paperbacks within the purchasing power of students. Yeah, it's interesting that it wasn't on the curriculum in Galway, but I, I always think it's very curious that um, the great short story anthology of the school days in the late 1960s was Gus Martin's Exploring English. And there's no short story by Joyce in that anthology. I mean, Joyce, who taught us how to write the short story in Ireland, really, um, is not included. And you wonder, yeah, I I, I, well, I, I absence speaks volumes in yeah, it, itself, yeah. doesn't it? And do you remember reading Portrait of the Artist uh, as, a, as a young person? Yes, and my experience is similar to Luke's. I would have started a BA in Cork in UCC in, in the, the mid-70s and we read an awful lot of poetry for our degree but very little fiction. So in first year um, we read fiction extracurricularly and um, that's when I discovered Joyce. I would have first read Portrait of the Artist. Lord of the Rings, I remember, was very big when I was in first year too, so Joyce was sitting alongside these other um, texts and you felt partly that you were discovering yourself. I'm from Cork, so of course the, the, the city Joyce is writing about to me is still exotic, even though I live, I, I live in Dublin now. But I think the experience of any um, adolescent is empathy. You empathise with Stephen. You may have difficulty with some aspects of, of his personality as his own college friends and school friends seem to have anyway with him um, but you, you absolutely project yourself into him, uh, into his emotions and his fears. You, you didn't find it a, a very male book? This is mid-70s in, in Cork I wouldn't have been aware of feminism at that period in, in my life. Now looking at the novel, it is quite male, even though the figures of the, the women within the, the novel are, are of huge interest, because I think um, Joyce is both trying to portray the way in which they are marginalised within Irish society, but they, they still matter a lot. You can see on in the first pages that the mother is there, and she's supplying Stephen with the literary voice. She gives him the rhythm, music, her voice uh, matters, but she's also somehow in the margins compared um, to the 
the, the, the father figures and the male friends. And she's uh, just sort totally, of nurture, isn't she's she? She's totally in the margins. I think I, I mean, to be honest now, I find the way Joyce can argue for Joyce's <laughs> feminist a bit. Uh, but I mean, yeah, she's there as a mother of the six-year-old boy. And then the next time we see her, she's washing his neck, the back of his ears or something. But um, And that's all we see of that mother. Though, mind you, none of the family appears very much in um, Portrait of the uh, Artist. But what was extraordinary, exactly as Anne says, I didn't notice that women were not there. It was much later when, you know, my consciousness was raised by feminism that I would have noticed this is a man's book. It's all about men. He goes to a boys' school, there are no women there. Then he goes to another boys' school. Then he goes to UCD, there are no women there. It's all deans and professor, male professors and male students and so on. And the girls whom he falls in love with and lusts after and whatever, are love objects. I mean, they don't, they're no intellectual women. They're objects, and we aren't those women. They're even kind of fantasy Mm. objects, like the girl who is like a stork or a bird in in the middle of the stream. It's a fantastic image and his muse and inspiring and so on. But it's it's an extraordinary male book. And of course, that would never have been, you know, nobody would have noticed that. I was a girl writer. I didn't, it didn't, didn't, I didn't notice. Luckily, I suppose that. uh, None of the women are, are, you know, talking about Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or aesthetics or anything. <laughs> Did you notice that, Luke? I mean, were you, were you aware of that as a young man reading the book? Well, one of the most interesting things about the sequence that Eilish has just mentioned about the, the bird girl sequence is that it has unusual prefigurings of later feminist interventions. For example, it's crucial that the bird girl looks back at him. It's not a one-way gaze. The the bird girl has returned gaze. And it's a good question whether Joyce was fully aware of the politics of vision in that sense. But there is a strange coda to it that in 1918, when Joyce was walking down the street in Zurich, he spotted this woman who transfixed him and he kind of followed her and she was wondering what was this man doing following her and then she kind of confronted him and said what's your problem and he said sorry I apologise but you remind me of a girl I saw bathing in the strand in a place where I'm from Dublin and he said I just can't get it out of my mind and the idea that some of these epiphanies have counterparts in reality is one of the startling revelations about portrait, even though it's stylized and it's a work of fiction. Indeed, that was one of the reasons people objected to it, that it wasn't taking enough poetic license. Real names were mentioned, real streets were mentioned. So it was anchored in reality in a way that fiction up to then had not been anchored in reality. And what is fantastic about that bird scene, I mean, that's where Joyce has his um, epiphany about himself as a writer and the he uses the word ecstasy himself and I think he captures perfectly that great sense of possibility and power and ownership that young people have can have um, whether they're female or male I remember those wonderful moments of excitement when you know the world is my oyster I can do anything a high you're high on air and I think that that is universal and applies to the male and the female and I think that expresses the huge optimism of Joyce and which I think contemporary literature by young people might tend to lack in a way. Let's hear that famous scene uh, from Portrait, the uh, bird girl strand scene. A girl stood before him in midstream, alone and still, gazing out to sea. She seemed like one whom magic had changed into the likeness of a strange and beautiful seabird. 
Her long, slender, bare legs were delicate as a crane's, and pure, save where an emerald trail of seaweed had fashioned itself as a sign upon the flesh. Her thighs, fuller and soft-hued as ivory, were bared almost to the hips, where the white fringes of her drawers were like featherings of soft white down. Her slate-blue skirts were kilted boldly about her waist and dovetailed behind her. Her bosom was as a bird's, soft and slight, slight and soft as the breast of some dark-plumaged dove. But her long, fair hair was girlish, and girlish and touched with the wonder of mortal beauty, her face. She was alone and still, gazing out to sea, and when she felt his presence and the worship of his eyes, her eyes turned to him in quiet sufferance of his gaze, without shame or wantonness. Long, long she suffered his gaze, and then quietly withdrew her eyes from his and bent them towards the stream, gently stirring the water with her foot hither and thither. The first faint noise of gently moving water broke the silence, low and faint and whispering, faint as the bells of sleep, hither and thither, hither and thither, and a faint flame trembled on her cheek. Heavenly God, cried Stephen's soul in an outburst of profane joy. He turned away from her suddenly and set off across the strand. His cheeks were aflame, his body was at low, his limbs were trembling. On and on and on and on he strode, far out over the sands, singing wildly to the sea, crying to greet the advent of the life that had cried to him. Her image had passed into his soul forever, and no word had broken the holy silence of his ecstasy. Her eyes had called him, and his soul had leaped at the call. To live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. A wild angel had appeared to him, the angel of mortal youth and beauty, an envoy from the fair courts of life, to throw open before him in an instant of ecstasy the gates of all the ways of error and glory. On and on and on and on. Brian McGovern there reading from a portrait of the artist as a young man. And Fogarty, the language there, you know, the, the vividness of that. Um, it, I suppose the, the precision as well and the, the beginning, it would seem almost, of the, the experimentation that would burst into life later. Yes, and, and Joyce's intermingling all different kinds of language there and um, that the scene is realist on, on, on one level we know where he is we can we can place it uh, but it uses aesthetic language rhapsodic language poetic language there's a sense always of language that's invoking um, something to this image of the the woman who's exoticized and yet um, symbolizes something and, and Joyce is rewriting the image I think here I differ with Eilish of, of Mother Ireland um, she's not a, an abstract symbol anymore she's a concrete real-life um, girl um, on a strand whom Stephen internalises in some ways and you, you can't say that he, he takes his vocation from her and she gets left behind but the mystery of the girl remains. It is the style in general of Portrait of the Artist you know, critics have said that it, it stands on the cusp between 
the naturalism of Dubliners and the formal experimentation that we see later in Ulysses mm. and Finnegan's Wake. Is that how you would generally read or, or see it? It seems to me that he's quite radical really in those um, opening pages where it's told in a language which is like the language of, a, you know, a baby and then of a five or six or seven year old child. He, he, he's, he's beginning to match um, for, form and style to content um, quite directly in a way which we now almost take for granted that people will do it but it was quite radical in his days because people had written of course about children Oliver Twist and Jane Eyre and, but in the language of grown-ups which is a perfectly valid thing to do and which you can still do now but I mean Joyce was moving on I mean he, he doesn't stay too long in that voice um, he switches into a much more adult voice um, quite quickly and you know by the time we get here it's so sophisticated so agile rhapsodic um, it's the language of poetry it's the language of philosophy it's quite difficult language in fact for um, I think contemporary readers to to even penetrate it's wonderfully impressive but it's it's flowery he's going to break away from that when he gets to to Ulysses and but it's interesting that you know, as a novel, Portrait of the Artist is, I don't know if it's sui generis, but it's, it's not an ordinary sort of novel. It's all about Stephen. <laughs> um, but he demonstrates that he's very good at um, doing characters and um, dialogue and the ear for how people speak and what they say and so on is, is right there. Some of the scenes like the Christmas dinner and the trip to Cork is great on that, mm-hmm. for instance. I mean, I think Joyce himself said this is a young man's novel. It is a young man's novel. I mean, he's a show off and he's arrogant and he's all the things that young literary people are. <laughs> Often are. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Which and is fine. Do we know how autobiographical the novel is? I mean, how closely does the family of Stephen Dedalus reflect Joyce's own family, for instance? Um, it's hugely autobiographical, even though Joyce always plays with reality as well. Um, he makes tiny uh, shifts um, and moulds things in, in a particular way, um, partly because everything is seen from um, Stephen's point of view. It, it seems no accident that the, the novel was serialised in a journal called The Egoist. It really is about the, the development of uh, an ego. But he captures our Irish reality. Um, th- there are many things, of course, where reality uh, was, was different. As Eilish has mentioned, the family seems to be faded out. Um, quite a lot um, and equally his account of his university years in, in UCD you get a sense that Stephen is the, the lone genius amongst a, a benighted group of students which wasn't at all the case because he <laughs> belonged to a very revolutionary um, group of people at, at UCD um, it comes true in his conversations of course with his friends but you still think that Stephen is the um, the sole survivor um, of a retrograde culture and that, that wasn't the, the case. Um, so Joyce uh, reinvents a reality but he also some man just to give, give us um, it in, in quite a, a lot of accurate detail. Luke, that scene in Portrait, I mean, the, the famous uh, Christmas dinner scene, obviously we have to talk about it given the month that's in it, but a real case of the personal and the political being fundamentally interwoven and political failure and personal tragedy echoing each other. There's an earlier scene when young Stephen comes home from Clangos and he walks into the dining room and he sees the fire in the grate and his eyes scan the room and he sees ivy hanging from a chandelier and then we we begin to realize that in fact no matter where stephen goes he seems to spot only two colors red and green and it takes a while to dawn we go back to the very beginning 
which Frank McGuinness read, where the very first colours mentioned are the red rose blossoms and the little green place. Mm. But the young Stephen can't bear red and green to be separate. So he says the green rose bothered. And then we learn that Dante, which Anne Enright said, said she played. Maureen Potter played her in the film. So Anne Enright is in Distinguished Company. So Dante had two brushes. The red was for David and the green was for Parnell. So it's almost as if Parnell goes all the way down into the senses and as if politics goes all the way down into the body and that Stephen's whole worldview is framed by the almost catastrophic fall of Parnell. Parnell's fall just seems to have put a civil war in the soul. It comes to a head then at the the, the dinner table, starts off as a communal feast and it ends up as a kind of civil war. And it, it is an extraordinary scene. And I mean, you, you write about this whole issue in Voices on Choice, the, the book you've edited with Fran O'Rourke. And um, what is the particular power of this scene within the novel? And I suppose then within almost the, that larger frame of the story of Ireland at that time and as it echoes back and forth? It really brings home that the domestic and the public um, come together. It's a perfect mini-drama and Joyce captures all of the voices. It's a moment of huge excitement for, for Stephen. It seems to be his first kind of formal Christmas. The other children and the family are not present at this Christmas dinner. It's dominated by um, adult voices and the quarrels. Earlier on, Stephen thinks about the mis- mysterious word politics. What does it mean? He, one of his definitions is it's what those quarrels, the arguments he hears at home. The divisions within Irish society replay themselves at home for Stephen. He sees um, his mother and his father, um, his father's friend and and Dante quarrelling about Parnell, who's now um, dead, is seen as a a scandalous figure in Irish society and because of the the scandal in and around um, um, divorce. What's strange about Dante is that she still seems to be loyal to Davit. She rips the green um, off the one brush. Um, So in fact she she may have some kind of radical politics lingering in her, um, but what's uppermost in her consciousness is that now Parnell um, has sinned. For Stephen, um, the other shock of the occasion is the fact that his father um, is so involved and so invested um, in these debates. And the scene ends with Stephen looking um, at his father's face and seeing the tears in his father's eyes and the the shock and horror of this. Um, Suddenly the the father, who he has admired up to this point, um, is in breakdown. And this breakdown is symbolic of a kind of breakdown in Irish society um, but a breakdown from which some Something will emerge. Um, earlier on, Stephen has identified with Parnell, and when he's sick with fever and hallucinating at school, um, he imagines the body of Parnell being brought back to, to Dublin. Um, so he, he actually has cross associated himself with Parnell and what Parnell stood for. Um, Parnell, on one, on one level, is division within so- Irish society and conflict, but he also represents something else that his ghost may give rise to something something new, and this something new will come through Joyce and, and other members of Irish society. But Joyce is particularly thinking about his own vocation and what he wants to achieve. Luke, uh, the novel published for the first time in 1916, and you see um, a link between the proclamation of Easter 1916 and a portrait of the artist. Previous autobiographies tended to be written by a self or an author who was already existing and then they decide to report on their existence. But portrait is unusual in that it writes the self into existence. It, the word becomes self, the word becomes flesh and it's almost as if the self is being created and then he says at the end I, I will go to create 
forge in the smithy of my soul, the uncreated conscience of my race. He doesn't say the uncreated conscience of myself. Where the link with the rising comes in is that the proclamation, as read by Patrick Pearce in the front of the GPO, it wasn't just reporting that the nation was in existence. The proclamation staged the nation. The proclamation is a speech act. Proclaimed the nation. It's proclaiming the nation into existence. So there's this extraordinary performative power to language. That language is not just about something, but it's actually given rise Mm. to the the thing. It's creating something. It's creating something. And that idea of the kind of language as production, language as creation, it's it's an extraordinary coincidence that these two evocative stagings of language take place in 1916. Joyce himself is in exile in, in Zurich. Um, he, he wanted Portrait to be published one way or the other, um, but the, the fact that he was very insistent that the, the book should appear in, in 1916 makes it clear that he does want to be part of the, the ferment of that period. And Joyce, as we know, never dissociated himself from Dublin. Early on, he feels homesick. He's often seen as not being part of the, the literary revival. He does back away from it and uh, massively attacks it. But he wants to be part of it at the same time in that kind of perverse um, Joycean way. Uh, Ezra Pound, who was always given to making provocative statements, um, declared in one letter that the rising would not have been necessary if everyone in Ireland had read Portrait of the, the, the Artist. <laughs> might have caused the rising. <laughs> it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful idea, actually. Uh, Luke, I suppose um, you're hoping to provoke debate around uh, Joyce's place in in Ireland and the world in your new book um, Joyce's Ghosts, Ireland, Modernism and Memory, um, arguing that Joyce's Irishness is intrinsic to his modernism and that uh, perhaps a great deal of his literary achievement has its roots in in Irish history and identity and in, I suppose, uh, late colonialism and the mutations of language in this country. Where do we see that in portrait, for example. Well, I suppose the most emblematic scene is the extraordinary scene with the Dean of English Studies when the young Stephen Dedalus goes to visit the Dean of English Studies. And, of course, he comes speaking English. So he ha- happens to mention this word, tundish. And the Dean says, I beg your pardon, what, what does tundish mean? And Stephen says, tundish, you know, the thing you use to pour oil. And the Dean says, my word, I never heard of tundish. So this this confrontation takes place and the Dean says, where did you learn it? And Stephen says, in drum con- in Lord Drumcondra, where they speak the finest English, Bertie Heron's territory. So, so it's, it's extraordinary that this happens. But it's the scene then that takes place where Joyce says, the words Christ, ale, master on his lips and mine are different. So what you begin to see is Joyce making an intervention about the vernacular, a new way of speaking. Hiberno-English, if you want to put it like that. And indeed, it was Joyce's argument that his contribution to the revival was not so much reviving Irish, but destroying English. <laughs> that, yeah. So in that sense, there's a different project, but it's it's running in tandem with the parts of the rising that were modernist rather than the parts of the rising that were revivalist and were just looking to Ireland and Ireland only. I think that's, uh, of course, Joyce honours Hiberno-English later, but I think in Portrait of the Artist he's rejecting it because he's ashamed of using the word tundish, but later he does. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's certainly a trauma in that 
moment. And one of the points about the words home, Quaisdale Master, the Dean of Studies is, is an Englishman, is that they would be pronounced very differently, of course, in Dublin and in, indeed in different areas of Dublin. And Stephen reacts particularly to the voices of his university friends and it's their accents he always picks up on, you oh, know, yeah, Davin, the, the, the country The boy. peasant yeah. student mm. or whatever. I mean, portrait touches on many aspects of what's going on in Ireland at that time, including the Gaelic League, but it's, it's kind of only touched upon. But and doesn't it turns Dolan writes about some of this in his essay in, in Voices on Joyce, in his essay uh, Babel or Babel. You know, he's yes. highlighted was Joyce's use of language and observations of language as a tool as, to examine and clarify people's insecurities and pretensions as well. Um, there's a trauma in, in and around language, I, th- I think, for Joyce, but he, he, he's also aware that this is his raw material and that capturing um, the, the vernacular, the voices of the, the, the street uh, and people around him will be his pathway uh, into language itself. Um, it's evident that the final chapter of um, Portrait looks forward to Ulysses in that there's so much walking. You know, Stephen spends no time at all at lectures. He never, never attends class, no. um, except to talk to other people before classes begin or something like that. But he walks the streets with his friends and thereby is discovering um, Dublin. Um, but it's just the, this kind of sense that language is a lack, that the Irish language is not the language he wants to, to work in. And he can't claim an ownership of, of the English language either, um, but he can reinvent it. And that's what's beginning to happen uh, in portrait, even though I think there's a greater sense of division and conflict in the Stephen Dedalus we, we encounter in, in portrait than later uh, in, in Ulysses, where Joyce can push forward with, with his project of, of this language too. And one of the historical aspects of the reception of Portrait of the Artist is that it coincided with the publication of Thomas Macdonough's book, Literature in Ireland. And reviewer after reviewer in the United States and Britain picks up on the fact that Thomas Macdonough makes a case for hybrid English. He's for Irish language, but he says English is here to stay and Hiberno-English. So Macdonough is one of the first to make a critical case for what we would now call Hiberno-English. So that link between the rising and between the reception of Joyce is uncanny as well. And then what Joyce was doing was when he said that the role of fiction was to not so much hold the mirror up to nature, but to hold the cracked looking glass of a servant, meaning by that the language from below the stairs as well as the language from above the stairs. Uh, the confession is is almost a cliche of Irish literature, and and we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let's hear Barry McGovern read this excerpt from Portrait, possibly the template uh, for all subsequent scenes of confession. The slide clicked back, and his heart bounded in his breast. The face of an old priest was at the grating, averted from him, leaning upon a hand. He made the sign of the cross and prayed of the priest to bless him, for he had sinned. Then, bowing his head, he repeated the confitior in fright. At the words, my most grievous fault, he ceased, breathless. How long is it since your last confession, my child? A long time, father. A month, my child. Longer, father. Three months, my child. Longer, father. Six months. Eight months, father. He had begun. The priest asked, And what do you remember since that time? He began to confess his sins. Masses missed, prayers not said, lies. Anything else, my child? Sins of anger, envy of others, gluttony, vanity, disobedience. Anything else, my child? Sloth. 
Anything else, my child? There was no help. He murmured, I committed sins of impurity, father. The priest did not turn his head. With yourself, my child, and with others. With women, my child. Yes, father. Were they married women, my child? He did not know. His sins trickled from his lips one by one, trickled in shameful drops from his soul, festering and oozing like a sore, a squalid stream of vice. The last sins oozed forth sluggish, filthy. There was no more to tell. He bowed his head, overcome. The priest was silent. Then he asked, How old are you, my child? Sixteen, father. The priest passed his hand several times over his face. Then, resting his forehead against his hand, he leaned towards the grating and, with eyes still averted, spoke slowly. His voice was weary and old. You are very young, my child, he said, and let me implore of you to give up that sin. It is a terrible sin. It kills the body and it kills the soul. It is the cause of many crimes and misfortunes. Give it up, my child, for God's sake. It is dishonorable and unmanly. You cannot know where that wretched habit will lead you or where it will come against you. As long as you commit that sin, my poor child, you will never be worth one farthing to God. Pray to our mother Mary to help you. She will help you, my child. Pray to our blessed lady when that sin comes into your mind. I am sure you will do that, will you not? You repent of all those sins. I'm sure you do. And you will promise God now that by his holy grace you will never offend him any more by that wicked sin. You will make that solemn promise to God, will you not? Yes, Father. The old and weary voice fell like sweet rain upon his quaking, parching heart. How sweet and sad. Do so, my poor child. The devil has led you astray. Drive him back to hell when he tempts you to dishonor your body in that way. The foul spirit who hates our Lord. Promise God now that you will give up that sin, that wretched, wretched sin. Blinded by his tears and by the light of God's mercifulness, he bent his head and heard the grave words of absolution spoken and saw the priest's hand raised above him in token of forgiveness. God bless you, my child. Pray for me. He knelt to say his penance, praying in a corner of the dark nave, and his prayers ascended to heaven from his purified heart like perfume streaming upwards from a heart of white rose. Brian McGovern there, reading from a portrait of the artist as a young man. It is an extraordinary scene, and I suppose listening to it, I was reminded, you, know, you think of Frank O'Connor, McGaffron, Edna O'Brien, John Broderick, this litany of writers since... Um, I suppose we, we listen to that now or we read it in the light of our time. But it must have been, the writing must have been revolutionary. I, I, I guess it was absolutely revolutionary then. And um, But um, to a reader in 1970 or so, it was more or less an exact replica of experiences that... Um, 
were were commonplace uh, and had been written about, of course, uh, many times. That was a wonderful reading by um, McGovern there. You begin to see the comic potential of the scene. I mean, it doesn't go there. It's not comic. It's tragic. But there is a sort of a slight hint of humour or irony, I think, uh, in it. The relief of Stephen after the confession is very palpable as well. And I would read it as very much about the artist, the the young man gradually flying the net of religion above all. I mean, it's politics, it's nationalism, so on. But religion is the big one that he is getting away from um, towards the end of the book. And instead of, but instead of becoming a priest, he's becoming a kind of priest of writing. And he um, he sees himself as performing an act of transubstantiation um, of um, what is it he says of the um, the daily bread of experience into the radiant body of every living life. And really, it is by taking the daily bread of experience in this case something that seems astonishing and exotic and even weird to us like that kind of confession also the hellfire sermon and uh, and so on by describing them precisely and I guess selectively we relive the experience with him yeah he does transform it's getting the daily bread of experience across in a way that we we relive the daily bread of experience with him rather than um ever-living life. That's a kind of religious sort of terminology there, isn't it? Well, there's yeah. also, there's a kind of, almost a weary compassion in, in the voice of the priest. That's, yeah, that's, no, the that's, priest that's is That's now good, relief uh, somehow well, in... The priest passing his hand over his face kind of <laughs> in, when he asks the age and you, you're kind of with the priest there, you think, oh my God, what is this guy like? You sort of know what the priest is, is thinking in the context of the time. And he, he's, he's there in the mind of the priest as well. It's a fantastic piece of writing, it takes a kind of comical turn, all right, in Ulysses when Molly remembers her confession with Father Driscoll and, and, and the priest says, and where did he touch you? She says, on the river bank. <laughs> Knowing well, she says, what he was up to. Yeah. So it's almost as if that's a kind of parody of the scene in portrait. But the other kind of subtext in it, which is, again, one of the shocking parts of portrait for contemporary observers, but maybe not as shocking for contemporaries as us, is the way the red light district was seen as part of the apprenticeship of, come back to the male-dominated discourse, how much it was part of professional Catholic males. And indeed, Catherine Mullen, in this wonderful book on Joyce and sexual purity, kind of points out that there were very little attempts on the part of the Catholic Church to shut down Manto. It was Protestant crusaders who were against vice. And it was almost, so you'll get in several novels of the period. In a strange way, it was kind of... Almost as a rite of passage. (coughs) And we get a glimpse of a slightly later Dublin in your book, those wonderful uh, Lee Miller photos uh, of Dublin, 1946, in Voices on Joyce, uh, your book with Fran O'Rourke. But those photos have their own connection, don't they, to a portrait of the artist? Yes, they do. Um, the signature that Joyce uses, um, finishing out the, 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 the text of, of, of portrait is the dates and places. Um, Dub- Dublin 2 to 1904 to 1914. He leaves, uh, goes into exile, emigrates from, from Dublin in 1904, as we know, 8th of October, uh, with, with Nora Barnacle. But 1904 remains the pivotal year um, for Joyce. It's the year not just in which he leaves Ireland, but also in which he finds himself um, as an artist. 
realised over the summer of that year he's gestating his theory of Shakespeare and for Joyce that was symbolically uh, in, important. Lee Miller comes to uh, Ireland in a, directly in, in the late 1940s in the post-war um, period. She herself is one of the major photographers um, of the concentration camps in, in Europe and is possibly suffering um, from the traumatic effect of that experience and she comes to Dublin to follow in the footsteps of Joyce. Um, it was a commission by the US um, Vogue and is a sign of Joyce's early celebrity in fact by the, the 1940s he was the kind of artist who would um, feature in a magazine like this and Miller literally walks the streets and what's uh, she herself is a modernist photographer and artist um, had worked with Man Ray and other major figures in, in Paris in the 1930s and what's interesting is that she replicates Joyce in, in a new manner in that she traces the streets of Dublin does what all Joycians do um, go to the, the, the scenes that we uh, and places that are still there and street scenes that still exist in, in a fashion uh, in Dublin but she looks at life in the 1940s on those streets as well English you, you teach portrait on to students of creative writing in UCD uh, what do today's students make of this novel I have taught it once or twice on a course I do on reading and writing the novel and they found it quite challenging actually to my surprise and I realised the distance um, between their experience and portrait is is now considerable but um, stylistically they can learn quite a lot from it um, particularly um, the earlier and easier chapters you, I mean there are aspects of the of portrait of the artist you, you, you couldn't reproduce I think in a, in a novel today you know 10 pages of a sermon <laughs> just kind of there you are I don't know where he got it from but it, or you couldn't have the big long platonic sort of dialogues about um, aesthetics and Aristotle and so on between the students which are you know kind of quite clunky and the dialogue is really a device for Joyce and the young Stephen to um, you know to, to rant on really about his own theories of, of aesthetics and what constitutes beauty and art and all the rest of it but in another sense while you would be saying you know you know students might not emulate that in another sense it is a sort of creative writing text in itself because it's all about writing and what art is and how am I going to you know what am I going to write and how am I going to write so in that sense it's quite inspiring the creation the, of the artist <laughs> the dedication that is required it is what it says on the pack it's all mm. about it's a portrait of the artist as a young man and I think it, it, it works like that for good students it's a must as I say every time you read it you see something else which is a great sign of a book but um, this time I thought gosh there's a Buddenbrooks in there trying to get out you could have done enough Joyce's family is so interesting the downfall of this bourgeois family Mm. to be finally represented Mm. by the artist kind of the theme of the novel written just a little bit earlier Thomas Mann's Thomas first Mann. novel, the great yeah. big mammoth novel um, about about a similar sort of family, which um, also loses money, but not to the extent of drinking their tea out of jam jars like the poor Joyce's. But, and there's uh, that theme of humili- social humiliation. That there, I mean, yeah. Eilish mentioned sexual humiliation earlier, but there's also social humiliation in that Stephen Dedalus his father calls the ended up with the Christian brothers with Paddy Mudd and Mickey Stink which was seen to be the snobbery I mean it it catches the snobbery of the well-to-do and the socially 
mobile Catholic classes very well. And I think in that sense, that kind of resentment that Joyce had is yeah. brought out very well. In it. It's always a state of becoming. Things are in, in flux. You kind of made the, the, the point that we should think about the, it as a cubist portrait anyway, because we have the five separate portraits in the, in the different chapters, mm-hmm. snapshots of, of um, portraits of Stephen at different points in, in, in time. Um, but he never be- quite becomes the artist he wants to be. And he's still struggling to become that artist. And Ulysses, in fact. But Joyce wanted that open-endedness. And this is uh, a person in flux, in a state of becoming, on his way to becoming an artist. And other people should join him in this journey when they read the text. And and that is a very good lesson for a creative person of any kind, because all artists are always in flux. You never become an artist. If you become an artist, it's probably (laughs) over. Um, And uh, let's hear uh, the the last lines, the, the famous ending of Joyce's great novel, uh, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. 16th of April. Away, away! The spell of arms and voices, the white arms of roads, the promise of close embraces, and the black arms of tall ships that stand against the moon, the tale of distant nations. They are held out to say, We are alone, come! And the voices say with them, we are your kinsmen. And the air is thick with their company as they call to me, their kinsmen, making ready to go, shaking the wings of their exultant and terrible youth. 26th of April. Mother is putting my new second-hand clothes in order. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. Amen. So be it. Welcome, all life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. 27th of April. Old Father, old artificer, stand me now and ever in good stead. There you heard Barry McGovern reading the final iconic lines of James Joyce's novel A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And as the centenary year of its first publication approaches, I was discussing that novel with author Eilish Nguivna, Luke Gibbons, whose book Joyce's Ghosts, Ireland, Modernism and Memory has just been published by the University of Chicago Press, and Anne Fogarty, whose book Voices on Joyce, co-edited with Fran O'Rourke, was published earlier this year by UCD Press. On next week's Arts Tonight, the Irish College in Paris. For over a decade now, the Centre Culturel Irlandais, a major cultural and educational centre at the heart of Europe. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, is produced by Cleon in the Onloon.